Psalm 139. And as you do so, just take a moment of personal privilege here to thank uh, Lisa and company for getting the Christmas decorations up. We so appreciate that effort. To uh, also say yesterday's seminar that went just so very well. Very encouraging time together. And I'd encourage you, Boulevard, you have folks that want to do well in worship leadership. And I think everybody found that a useful time yesterday. And then finally, just thank Jason for filling in for me last Sunday while I was taking a bit of vacation. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from before. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of our God. Father, bless the preaching of your word now. By your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When Martin Luther debated the humanistic thinker of the era Erasmus, out of that came his book, The Bondage of the Will, and he leveled this accusation against Erasmus. Your God is too human. One could say that that has been one of the fatal flaws of sinful humanity since the beginning. We make God like ourselves. We want a God 
whom we may manipulate. But the God of Scripture is not manageable. We come now to this fifth message in our series on the nature and attributes of God. Hold before our eyes the aspects of God's attributes today known as the omni-attributes. Omni simply means all. So as we ponder the issues of omnipresence and omniscience and omnipotence, what we're saying is God is always with us. God knows everything, all things, and God is absolutely all-powerful. My brothers and sisters, this ought to be the basis of great encouragement the more we are confronted with the splintering of our culture, the fracturing of our social fabric, the more comforting it is to know that God stands above all that and He is sovereign over all of that. Puritan Richard Sibb said it this way, there's a relation between God and His people. He is so with them as that they are with Him likewise in all passages. Does He choose them? They in time choose Him. Does He call them? They answer. Doth he justly and freely, does He justify and free them from their sins? They make that answer of faith that Peter speaks of. I do, be, I do believe, Lord, Help my unbelief. They have faith to lay a hold upon forgiveness. And likewise, if God be with them, they can delight in God's presence. Now, there's no way. I have, I have neither the skill nor enough life left for us to plumb the depths of everything we're going to talk about when it comes to who God is and what He's like. I know a few of you chuckled when you heard I was going to cover all three of the omni-attributes today, and some of you brought your lunch out of fear, I think. Certainly we shall only hit high points, but enough that I'd pray that for you this becomes a means of comfort and joy and steadiness. God's presence, God's knowledge, and God's power are all without limits. They are full, they are complete, they are infinite, they are expansive, there is no limit to them. God is always with us, omnipresence. Some years ago a Christian minister in India reported seeing Hindu worshipers going around tapping on trees and stones, asking the question, are you there? Are you there? Looking for the animistic spirits that would occupy a plant. The Christian never asks this question in a, in a properly theological way. In, in this sense, we may sense God is present and ask if He's there. What we usually mean by the question, though, is not are you actually present, but do you care? Scripture tells us in Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Or Jeremiah 23, 
Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. God is omnipresent. He is nowhere more present than he is anywhere else. The vastness of the universe, as vast as it is, does not stretch in some capacity the greatness of our God who is eminently present and also transcendent above the entirety of the created order. Now let me point out that for unbelievers, the idea that God is omnipresent, that God is um, further omniscient, is a terrifying prospect. Some of the philosophers within secularism have complained that the Christian view of God makes God this eternal, infinite voyeur who looks in on everybody's life. My friend, all we're affirming is what God reveals to us about himself. He is everywhere present at all times. Think about our assumptions here. When we pray, we assume God's presence, right? That is a a starting point. We believe God actually hears us. When we arrive here for worship service and we have the elements of the worship service, We're not asking God to show up. God's here. What we may be asking is, God, show yourself in a new way to my own heart. Hold up to me what I need to know of myself and of you. Work here in ways that are powerful, we would pray. But our praying presumes the presence of God. It is extraordinary to me when I think about the story of Jonah. Jonah called to go to Nineveh. And Jonah absolutely refusing. He goes to Joppa and he gets on a ship to go to Tarshish. And Tarshish was as far away as he could go. And the text literally says he was running from the presence of the Lord. That, my friend, is a fool's errand. Which he discovered right shortly. But Jonah knew better. That took him being in the belly of the fish for a little while to come to a better theological conclusion. But I love it when it says in Jonah, and Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish. Now, I'll give you a quick aside. If you have a problem with God making a fish big enough to swallow a man, your view of God is really screwed up. I'll, I'll repeat from another brother from a bygone era. If the Lord wanted to, he could make a three bedroom, two bath, living room, and fireplace fish. Our praying presumes God's presence. Our worship presumes God's presence. When Jesus says in John 4, the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. 
And he says to the woman, it's no longer going to be about the temple at Jerusalem, although that's right now. And it's not going to be about this mountain. The issue is no longer going to be geographical. It's not going to be a matter of location. God is with his people everywhere, and they are called to worship him in spirit and truth. God's constant presence is designed as part of our comfort as creatures. When we feel alone, He is with us. No matter where we are, He is present. This 139th Psalm of David, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? And then he lists it. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to the grave, the abode of the dead, you're there. If I fly as far away as I possibly can, you're there. If I hide in darkness, darkness is as light to you. There is no escaping this God. Christian, this is why we try to be so very careful when we talk about worship, that we not turn a facility into a sanctuary, if you will, a temple. God is present in all the temples gathered here today. He has taken up residence in all of us by His Spirit. We are God's temple. That's why it's such a big deal to do anything to bring harm to a Christian because you're, you're bringing injury against the temple of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Now, there's a boundary, obviously, between God and us. R.C. Sproul, in his book, One Holy Passion, put it this way, the boundary between God and the world is a boundary of being. To step into his immediate presence would not be to step into the future or into the sky, but through a dimensional veil. We cannot see him. He must reveal himself to us, and he is everywhere present in that process. And, and we're blind to it at times, are we not? You remember the story of Elisha and his servant? Second Kings 6 tells the story. The king of Syria was all upset because every time he'd plan a raid, it was like the Israelites were prepared. So he wanted to know who it was that was betraying him to the Israelites. And they said to him, it's none of us, O Lord, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom even. And he said, go see where he is that I may send and seize him. And it was told, behold, he's in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. This sounds grim, doesn't it? When the servant of the man of God arose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Here's Elisha. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I don't think it helped. Because we're told next, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of chariots of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
Now, folks, those were there even when he couldn't see them. It was a matter of being granted the ability to see. The Lord is present and especially present with his people. God is in everything in a general way by his presence, power, and substance, but we may say that in some things in a more intimate way by grace. My friends, the promise of our final salvation is the presence of the Holy Spirit actually dwelling in us. This is why you ought to tremble, my friend, not when you come into a building that has all the architecture and the art and the beauty to come into the presence of God. I'm not saying those things can't be moving. I'm saying to you, my friend, if we took this seriously, we would live in a sense always with a trembling because everyone who's one of His is a dwelling place of the Spirit of God. He is among us. God is fully present everywhere. God is not only omnipresent, God is all-knowing. That is, He is omniscient. This refers to the knowledge God possesses. God's knowledge, according to Louis Burkhoff, the theologian, that perfection of God, whereby He, in an entirely unique manner, knows Himself and all things possible and actual in one eternal and most simple act. He knows. God's knowledge is absolute. It's complete. He knows in a way which is beyond our comprehension. David starts this 139th. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Here's what we're saying. God never learns anything. He never gains new knowledge. He never loses knowledge. Isn't that one of the most discouraging things being human? There's stuff, I know it's up there somewhere. Yeah. I say it this way, the, 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 you know, the, the hard drive is more or less intact the search engine is way outdated, and there are no upgrades. <laughs> That's why there's a lot of times people ask me about something, and what I see is the spinning beach ball of death, like on a Mac, right? Searching, searching. God can know an event ahead of time, and it still be a free act, if you understand that freedom is not absolute, but is conditioned by our nature. Let me point it out in this way. In Acts, the second chapter on the day of Pentecost, as Peter is preaching a sermon to those who are gathered, they're trying to figure out what's going on. The Spirit of God has been poured out. They have spoken in other tongues, and they're hearing the wondrous works of God. Peter preaches a sermon, and he says to them, Acts 2.23, This Jesus, now hear the words, Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. No accident. God ordained it. It was a certainty it was going to happen. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now which of those phrases is true? They both are. 
God ordained what would happen, and the men who did it are responsible for their actions. The text of Scripture does not set up a conflict between those. If we're conflicted, it's our problem. It's not His. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows all things in one instantaneous, simple, single event. He doesn't have to search for something. It is all available to him at all times. God's wisdom in this is he knows and controls our circumstances. He knows and hears our prayers and answers them. He knows about us. We could never hide anything nor surprise him. A.W. Tozer in the Knowledge of the Holy says it this way, No talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to shame us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us since He knew us utterly before we knew Him and called us to Himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. You never surprise or shock the Almighty. What glorious comfort this is. He knows you. Now, I know, so I'm not sure how comforting that is because I'm kind of a mess. Okay, let me, let me help you on that. You're not kind of a mess. You're just a mess. Right? Well, I'm not saying you don't pursue holiness. I'm not even saying you don't take it seriously and that Many of you are making great progress in godliness, but I don't care how much progress you make in this life, my friend, you are still sinful. It's still in you. It shows up. Right? I don't know. Anybody get impatient this week? If you drove in Springfield, I'm not sure how in the world you didn't get impatient this week. I've discovered every year between Thanksgiving and Christmas, one of the greatest trials to my sanctification is going anywhere in the city of Springfield. I don't know where all these people come from, but they need to learn about stoplights and green lights. And I'm reminded of a joke somebody said, you know, a fellow had been sitting there trying to get through a light. He couldn't get the thing in gear. He'd never driven a stick shift. And this was in Ireland. It was Daniel Craig who portrayed James Bond, and he was trying to learn how to drive a stick. Finally, the guy in the car behind him got out and walked up to him and said, was it a particular shade of green you were waiting for? <laughs> Paul will say it this way in Galatians 4, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. Now listen, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You know God, but you know God because God first knew you. God is omniscient. He is omnipresent, He is omniscient, and God is also all-powerful. He is omnipotent. A.W. Pink put it this way, He who cannot do what He will 
and perform all his pleasure cannot be God. If God cannot do what his will determines, then he cannot be God. Now, how is this defined? Psalm 62, 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to you, O Lord. Now, see, we can think in terms of taking away all our limitations of power and get an idea of God's omnipotence. But we have to use means to accomplish our ends. God can simply will something to happen and it be done. This is the divine fiat. God speaks, it happens. God's power, Spurgeon said, is like himself. Self-existent, self-sustained, the mightiest of men cannot add so much as a shadow of increased power to the omnipotent one. He sits on no buttressed throne and leans on no assisting arm. His court is not maintained by his courtiers, nor does it borrow its splendor from his creatures. He is himself the great central source and originator of all power. The scripture over and over and over again affirms this. In the Old Testament, it uses the term Shaddai, El Shaddai, Lord Almighty. In the New Testament, Pantocrator, all-powerful. Both of these contain the idea of the limitless power, and they are only used of God. How is this seen? In creation. He spoke, it came to be, he commanded, it stood firm. God says, let there be, and it is. It shows up in preservation. Colossians 1.17, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the one who makes all this stuff work, children. When he stops supporting it, it ends. In the judgment, no one escapes. He is almighty. That's why the psalmist makes such a blunt statement in the second psalm. Let us break his bonds. Let us cast his cords from us. He who sits in the heavens, what's he do? Laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And my friend, we see it in salvation. And you understand this is really the most glorious part of this truth. And I think of it this way. When the Apostle Paul is converted and sharing the gospel, taking the gospel through the known world, at one point he writes a letter to a church he hadn't yet visited. The church at Rome. Now folks, Rome in that day was the center of all military might, the center of all power. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, enforced by emperors and armies, was unrivaled. There had been nothing like it. And Paul, likely from Corinth, writes a letter to the Romans. And this group of Christians, we don't know how many, likely a relatively small group, he writes, and in the first chapter, he uses this language. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the 
power of God to what? Unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. My friends, you and I have received this powerful gospel. Paul will pray in Ephesians 1 that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Jude will end his little epistle with this glorious benediction, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence of, uh, excuse me, before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Now why would I hammer at that? Because, my friends, if your view of salvation is skimpy, your view of the power of God is skimpy as well. When I hear people say things about our power to determine whether or not we go to heaven, it's up to us whether we keep our salvation or lose our salvation. It's all up to us. That, my friend, is not merely an anemic salvation. That is damnation. If you could lose it, you would. You'd not get out of this room today. Well, I don't know. I, I, I can get out of here without doing anything bad. Can you get out of here without something crossing your mind that's evil, wicked, or horrid in some fashion? Well, well, well uh, no. Uh, may I refer you back to the previous point? God knows the thoughts of the intent of your heart. Are you trembling a little bit? Good. power of the gospel, my friend, is nothing less than this. It is the power of the Almighty coming by the work of the Spirit and the Word to bring to life dead, spiritually dead sinners. And in that regenerative awakening to grant the gift of faith that you may believe in he who died for you and be saved. And that then he takes up residence in you to sanctify you. And further, your Savior appears on your behalf at the right hand of the throne of God, the living, eternal representation of all that was done for your salvation. His very presence in heaven is His intercession. He is there on behalf of His people. And He is guaranteed to get you home safely. Now why? Why do this sermon as we lead up now to the Lord's Supper? Well, let me help you a little bit. You're invited this day to a meal. Now, I know I'll admit right up front, it's not going to fill you up. Not unless you have a tremendously restricted capacity. 
a thimble full of juice, and a bite of cracker. But the meal isn't about the quantity nor even the quality of the individual elements. The meal is this, it's a promise. You've been invited to dine with the Lord. And the meal symbolizes Him. You feed on Christ. Not in some cannibalistic way, but rather spiritually. It is recognizing that He is food and drink for our very souls. We celebrate in this that the Lord knows us. He knows everything about us. He knew us before we were born. He brought us to a saving knowledge of himself. He is present with us. He's always present with us by the Spirit. We're never left alone. He has shown us his power. He has powerfully regenerated us. He has mightily rescued us. His gospel is the demonstration of his power. And what we celebrate today in this simple memorial meal is that he has done for us what we cannot accomplish for ourselves and has promised us, guaranteed to us, a heavenly inheritance of Him and every single blessing that He is willing to give us. Christian, lift your eyes. Look at your God who in his omnipresence and omniscience and omnipotence has rescued you and rejoice for in the weakness of the cross the power of God is displayed and in the foolishness of the cross the wisdom of God is displayed. Let's pray. And Father, in a moment as we take the Lord's table, I pray you prepare our hearts for this, that we would receive it by faith, that Lord, if we're your children, this would be a great encouragement to us. Father, if there are things we need to make right with others, that we'd do so that we do not have anything hinder us. And Lord, I pray as well, there are some here who do not know the Lord, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would hinder them from taking this, for it be to eat and drink a lie. May they come to saving faith first. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now I'm going to ask the deacons who are going to serve, they could go ahead and come up here and join me. As they're doing that, I know we have several guests this morning,